This week on Dig Me Out. Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week, uh, it's an interview. We haven't done one of these in a while. Yeah, it's been uh, difficult to get one. I'm glad we finally got one nailed. We did, and it's an interesting one, Jay. We like to talk to people who were in bands in the 90s, but then have maybe moved on to to new projects. Last year, we talked to a guy like John Davis, who... When we spoke to him last year, he had just put out the, the Leaves of Memory album, and he was in Super Drag in the 90s and the 2000s. And uh, this week, we're chatting with um, the gentleman of the band, Seven Horse. So, Phil Levitt and Joey, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Kaleo, uh, they were in a band called Dada, which, Jay, you probably remember them. They had a a song called Disneyland that was a single in the early 90s. Yeah, and it was it came out right around the time when like alternative was breaking. You know, this is, you know, the, the yeah. When, yeah. I get this confused with uh, there was a couple other songs around this time. I feel that were uh, well, I think we reviewed a band that had a hit around this time that had a similar kind of song, like odd, a little bit of an oddball. Yeah. So they they were in Dada throughout the the nineties, and then. Uh, early 2000s, it was a three-piece with Phil, Joey, and Michael Gurley. Michael Gurley went on to do some other stuff solo-wise. Um, he's also you know, gotten back with the band. They've done reunion shows. But in the you know, breakup of the band, Phil and Joey, Phil being the drummer and uh, Joey being the bassist in Dada, uh, decided to start jamming and formed Seven Horse with Joey playing guitar uh, primarily, as well as some bass on the record, and then Phil taking over the lead vocals, which he sang some backup in Dada, but he wasn't the lead singer. So they uh, they put out their first record back in um, 2011, and the first song on that album got noticed by the guy who did music for Martin Scorsese, and he ended up using a song called uh, Meth Lab Zoso Sticker in The Wolf of Wall Street. Wow, nice. Yeah. And uh, they have no idea. And I've read this interview, and they talk about it in the, inter- in the interview we're about to play. They, d- they don't know how he discovered <laughs> the, the band. Yeah. They're befuddled by it. Uh, School of Fish was the band I was trying to think of. Oh, okay. Three gotcha. Strange Days. Yeah, another band that had a hit. Be, like before the wave, massive wave of explosion yeah. of 
alternative and grunge and all that stuff. And it, it, you know, both these songs I think are like pure alternative pop songs, which were yep. There was a time in the early '90s where there's a some of these creep through, and then all of a sudden, you know, heavier stuff took over, and sure, we didn't see as much. But yeah, I remember this. So let's go to the interview with Phil and Joey from Seven Horse and Dada. Thank you both for for coming on the podcast. First of all, uh, I wanted to uh, bring up the, the new record, which uh, just came out in April. Living in a bitch of a world. Um, it's the third Seven Horse album. And our listeners, our podcast. I don't know if uh, Dana ex- explained what the podcast was all about, but uh, we focus on uh, not the '90s. Um, that's when my co-host and I were in college radio at the time playing Dada records at the time. And, um, some of our listeners are going to be familiar with your previous bands or should I call it previous band or is it just the band that you're not playing in at the moment? Uh, yeah, I, I guess, I guess that'd be the, I mean, you know, we, we haven't had a band meeting where we look, it's kind of both. We're never going to do this again. <laughs> I mean, uh, at the moment, it's, uh, it's not the band we're playing in at the moment. Yeah. Gotcha. Or it may be our. It may be. A, it, we may never do it again. It's hard to say. Well, I, I had read not to go off on a too far of a tangent, but I had read that. I guess it was a couple years ago. There had been some recording going on, but nothing has been released. Is that true? Was there some recordings as Dada f- from a few years back, or was that just? Yeah, that internet? was actually. That was more than a few years. That was actually uh, 2010. Uh, okay. In 11. That was the precursor of Seven Horse. I mean, we we had been trying to work on a record, and uh, we had started it and had a, got a few things down. We just couldn't get to the point where we had any finished songs, and um, we had this block of studio time that was set aside for uh, Dada. And uh, the guitar player Mike Gurley uh, wasn't able to make that, and. Uh, we just decided to go ahead in anyway since we had the time. And okay. uh, it was in that session that uh, Seven Horse was born. So, and, and that's where I was kind of, I was getting towards, is that the people who listen to this podcast tend to be um, guys like me, you know, between the ages of 35 and 45, lived through the college radio experience in the 90s of all, all the explosion of alternative and independent music. Um they might be a little surprised by the sound of Seven Horse in comparison to Dada. And I'm curious as uh, what drove the direction of the sound for Seven Horse. From my perspective, uh, it was uh, Joey's desire to play to play the guitar. And, okay. Uh, to to uh, you know, and, and also our continuing ongoing discussions about what what is important in rock and roll and the the, the blues and you know the, the the essence of of why we 
uh, play rock music. Uh, and if we were going to do something uh, together, you know, how do we get to that? Because we had felt like uh, as much as Dada was as successful as it was, uh, we always felt that maybe it was a little too eclectic for mass consumption, let's say. And for us, we wanted to do something that was more focused on a specific idea. And uh, we had just kind of been listening to a lot of blues and early rock and roll. And uh, we just wanted to kind of capture that attitude and, and that style and bring it into a modern day sort of approach. And especially given that we were going to do it as a two piece, you know, there was a, there was a, a movement afoot um, about five years ago where you were seeing a lot of, you know, there was a few two piece guitar drum things that were breaking through. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and it was it was blues oriented uh, because it's a natural for that. Uh, and on top of it, he'd been playing a lot of slides, and so we thought to to to, to focus to, to have that be the focal point of our sound and go from there. You know, we didn't want to do a strictly a blues, you know, a black keys thing where we were just going to kind of reinvent, you know, vintage blues. We wanted to do a more rock and roll thing, which is. Uh, you know, the Stones and uh, the early uh, days of rock where things are swinging a little bit, but it's more song-oriented. So I think that's how we got to uh, the angle on Seven Horses. And I think that the other thing we had going for us is that here are two guys that have been a rhythm section, you know, for years. So we had a natural lock between these two people. So whether, you know, I'm playing bass or guitar... Phil is, you know, a rhythm genius, and um, it just was very easy. You know, it's so easy to lock in. I mean, uh, it it made yeah, you know none of us made it easier to start off. Another another big element in this is that with just the two of us, and I think this goes to the point you just made as a as a rhythm section. Our whole thing is about groove. Right. And uh, repetition, and you know what? What Michael Gurley brought to Dada was was a real sort of uh, educated uh, kind of uh, really well developed, almost jazz and somewhat classical music sort of. I mean, he's an educated musician with a lot of ability to play a lot of different chords, a lot of different voices, and we had a lot of that in uh, in Dada, and I think that's a big part of his influence, the harmony, you know, I mean, Joey right. and Mike singing together, but, you know, we, we decided to get away, we, we didn't have him in this, and we decided to focus on what our strengths were, which is rhythm, and uh, when, you, when you start working off of rhythm and rock and roll, you tend to simplify things and, and get it back to the roots of, of what the thing is all about. And there's something really appealing about that after you spent, uh, you know, 20 years in a band that, you know, plays a Didn't lot of chords. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, if you play in a band that plays a lot of chords and has a lot of complex music harmonies and stuff for a long time, and you're going to do something new, it's kind of a natural to strip it down and to get back to, you know, and we, and on top of it, we're both really attracted to that side of what rock and roll. I mean, to me, that is rock and roll. Right, it's, right. Uh, you know, it's the blues mixed with, uh, you know, some uh, some some country music, 
And, uh, you know, that's kind of with a, with a swinging kind of a feel, and that's, that's rock and roll. Had you sang lead prior to this? You know, I sang before Dada 20-some-odd years ago. Um, I, uh, I started my career as a writer uh, and a songwriter and quote-unquote artist. I had a, a little publishing deal when I was really young, and I spent a lot of time making demos you know, writing and producing my own stuff and singing. I was not a good singer. And um, in in Dada's career, I didn't really sing very much. If there was a third part, sometimes I'd cover it live. Didn't sing that much in the studio. Uh, I had had one song, um, you know, we did a a tune called Here Today, Gone Tomorrow, where I I sang in the chorus. And, uh, you know, occasionally I would sing. the answer is no i really hadn't been singing very much and uh, when i started doing it in seven horse i quickly found out that i needed to work on it because <laughs> it's a it's a whole other set of skills that uh if you're going to do it well you know you need some some technique behind it well that's that interesting was, you know honestly i think that's one of the best things that happened for both of us it it was it wasn't two guys coming in Swinging the exact same act, doing it like they've been doing it for years, and it's just this kind of slick kind of thing. It's two guys that are, yes, we've been musicians, we are lifers, we've been doing it all our life, but we turned it on its side. And now we're doing a, a a new complication, basically, within within that genre. And you know, he started being the lead singer. I've never, I've never fronted you know, being a guitar player ever in my life, you know. So uh, it, it, it added this element of, you know, there are some ball bearings all over the floor. Watch out. And it just, it was exciting, you know. It put a little excitement into this thing. It was, it's not by rote anymore. It's not that, it's not as easy as being in Dada. Dada became kind of an easy thing, I think, for me and Phil and probably Mike to, to be in because we've been doing it for so long, you know. So... It was it it, it it was it it turned it into something fresh instead of something stale. Well, I th- I think the thing that I really enjoyed in terms of the way that you guys are interpreting uh, early rock and roll and and blues is that um, so much of of songwriting you can hear whether or not a vocalist has a background in rhythm section in the rhythm section because of the way that they phrase. And when I listen, like if you listen to the first track on the first Seven Horse record, which is uh, Meth Lab's Oso Sticker, it sounds like it could be like a Robert Plant or a David Coverdale or somebody who's like a frontman of a rock band who's not doesn't have to worry about what chords he's playing on his guitar. Like it's the the vocal riff is parallel to a guitar riff in a lot of ways and it's because of the there's a a rhythm to it 
that a lot of times when guys who just sit down with a, a you know a guitar and play four chords, they're just sort of moving the 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 words to fit them in the spaces between the chord changes or not between the chords, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a much different approach to someone who has a rhythm background. And we've run into that with a number of people we've interviewed. They're the lead singer of bands, but they started out as a drummer in a punk band when they were 14 years old. And you can hear them have a better command of their vocal in terms of finding the rhythm. So that, that was something that I I really enjoyed. That's interesting because, you know, definitely, particularly on the first record, my, my approach to get into it was, you know, it was all about rhythm. And, you know, that also comes from a blues. Kind of, I had been listening to a lot of, you know, Muddy Waters and Alvin Wolf and even, uh, you know, Mississippi John Hurt and a, and a lot of real old school blues guys. And there's a, you know, there's a definite rhythm, rhythmic quality to everything that those guys do. What has been an interesting challenge as, as we've uh, gone on is that uh, I've now found a way to you know you, you have independence as a drummer you, you separate what you're doing between your limbs you know you've got you're playing poly, polyrhythms one with one foot's doing one thing the left foot's doing one thing the right hand's doing something against it you know that's something that as a, as a drummer you're always kind of dealing with you add that, uh, you start singing over that, and you want to start to phrase things instead of being direct. You know, at first, it's very easy to, for me anyway, it's very easy to lock in completely with where the drum groove is because I'm I'm playing it. You know, so the the vocals are completely in in the in the pocket with, you know, with the drums. What I found as we progressed is that I've been able to start to phrase things. Uh, you know, maybe phrase behind the beat, get up on top of it a little bit, and you want to do that as a vocalist to emphasize certain certain things, certain lines or whatever. And it's been an you know kind of a trick to be able to phrase behind the groove while you're still playing in time. And that I've noticed that over the last year, I've been able to do that more. And I think it it, it makes it even more interesting. So when things aren't always perfectly lined up, now they're kind of the vocal is sort of its own thing on top. And it's, it's just another level of independence that uh, takes a while to develop. So, Joey, does that, uh, I would imagine, as, as far as a guitar player goes, that you are playing a lot of open slide tunings and, and uh, stuff that, like, Keith Richards would do with uh, tuning everything to, you know, uh, to an open E or something like that. I, I imagine that's a much different approach than playing um, just standard tuning. Uh, well, for me, I mean, there are some guys that will play slide and standard tuning, um, and they're they're usually a hundred times better than me. But um, the, as far as slide for me, yeah, it's all open tuning opened up my world for that. So uh, we've been doing a lot of G and D in this band lately, uh, some E, but uh, we also do a lot of standard and some kind of tricky standard, you know, like there's a, 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 a Flatting a, a string, uh, a whole step in standard tuning, and we do we do a couple little things like that too. But uh, yeah, there's uh, it, it it makes it a little hard to travel uh, in this band. I will say that, uh, even though I like all my guitars, but 
you got to have you got to have a lot of different tuning. Right. I think when we first when we first went out, I was actually just detuning on stage, and it was kind of it's not the greatest. It's not really what you want to be doing. You know? <laughs> you know, I think I think the key the the, the, the key to all of that though is you know the thing that makes the the open tuning is pretty important when you're doing a two piece because you've got you know, you don't have a bass player on stage, so you need some kind of weight to the to the sound. And when you've got a guitar that's open tuned and you can drone and let stuff ring, uh, it adds this kind of fullness to the sound that you're, you know, if you're moving around in, uh, on a standard tuned guitar and you don't have that bottom end ringing a lot, um, you, you know, you sound kind of thin. But when we're in G and he's playing it, you know, on an open tuned guitar and the bottom end is just, you know, just hammering away, it gives us a pretty big sound for, for two guys. Right. Um, it helps. Have you toured with any additional musicians or has it always just been you guys? You know, we, uh, we were thinking about it on this left run. We had a friend of ours come out and sit in with us on bass and we had some ideas about how we were going to make it work. But, we ended up not going that way. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One of them was the economics. You know, it, it's pretty tough out there as it is, and uh, you know, car- carrying extra people right now at the level that this project is at is, is pretty tough. So, and there's also, you know, there's something cool about the fact that it is just the two of us on stage. And I think we want to maintain that. I mean, we have this, you know, vision of what this thing could be uh, with, ex- with additional guys, and you know, it could be a five-piece. Uh, because when we get in the studio, we have a lot of freedom to do whatever we want. We play different instruments, you know, we, we find ways to add sounds to it. But um, from a visual perspective, too, the look of the band with the drums and the guitar, we, we set up very close together. We're right up front. And uh, I don't really want to lose that. You know, it's a pretty cool uh, and unique kind of looking thing. So... So far, we've, we have not played a show with anybody. I mean, we've had a couple of guest harmonica players who've jumped up for uh, a tune or two. <laughs> but other than that, um, it's just been the two of us. Were those planned or did just random people show up with a harmonica and, and want to play with you? Uh, both. A <laughs> couple, couple of times it was planned. We have a friend of ours in town here, you know, a guy who uh, co-produced our first record, played harmonica, and he's on it. So we had him come down invite him down to play with us and then in the, on, the, on the early tours we did we put the word out that we were looking for somebody and um, you know we had some people we played with you know a chicago blues legend a guy named corky siegel uh he's been around a long time and played with all the uh originators of the chicago blues he came out and uh sat in with us and that was pretty cool and uh you know we've had some other guests along the way we haven't done that in a couple of years though that was really on the early tours we kind of got more and more comfortable just doing it by ourselves, and right. And uh, I got better. So we no. stuck with it. Yeah, exactly. He <laughs> <laughs> plays his own solos. <laughs> nice. So you you sort of briefly touched on the economics of the band. I'm curious. You know, you guys have been now. I guess you'd say in the music industry for going on 24, 25 years. Um, I would right, imagine right. you've seen the massive, uh, like a lot of us have seen the massive shift in terms of 
you know, the dominance of major record labels and then everything being consolidated and, and the, what you guys went through with IRS and, and MCA and, and labels that you guys yeah. were on. This is something that's always kind of uh, uh, unclear, I guess, to a lot of people that are not in bands. How do you guys feel about stuff like Spotify and Tidal and Apple Music where the the it's not about selling a record it's about uh a listen per 10,000 and and there's some sort of mm-hmm. you know nebulous kind of calculation that goes on to determine which penny you're going to get and when you're going to get it um yeah do you guys look at that as like the old Mike Watt idea of like it doesn't matter as long as you come to the show like that's where we want you to come to the show and buy a t-shirt and if that gets them to the show that's, well, that's fine a, that's a great theory uh, if they actually come to the show. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Because what, what, what we've seen is that the small club business has also taken a, a hit. I mean, right. I think people, you know, particularly people in the age group that you're talking about, the audience of this podcast, uh, I think are more inclined maybe to go to a festival, I don't know, uh, perhaps to go to a theater or a uh, arena show still for a big name artist. They've got money. They're willing to spend it. But the small club, which is where Seven Horse plays at this particular moment in time, the small clubs, it, it's very difficult to get people to come out on a Tuesday night. You have kids, you have jobs. It's not like when you're in your 20s and you know, you, you, you're out partying and you don't give a crap you know, what time you're going to wake up. And if you're a little hungover, it doesn't matter because you know, you're your job requires no brain power anyway. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, for people that are have some responsibilities in life. Uh, I think it's harder and harder to get them to come out to these guys that we play. <laughs> and and the the thing about the music business, you know, changing and stuff that didn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, it sent ripples throughout the, the you know all the way to the club. A lot of clubs just went out of business. Right. You know, people stopped going. You know, and so it's that's made it even first off, there's less places to play. And now the places that you can play are, you know, they're I I don't know how to say it, except for they're it's not as easy. You know, they're not as friendly, shall I say. No, but, you know, I also found I was interested. It was interesting. You know, we just got off the road and like any trip, any road trip, any tour, you're going to have your good nights and your bad nights. And, you know, you especially when you come into a market, you have never played it before. You don't know what to expect. The show doesn't sell for whatever reason. And it used to be that in those kind of situations, you know, and I still do, I feel somewhat responsible for what's going on that night. I feel, you know, uh, like the guy brought us into his club and, you know, we've done our best to promote the show. Hopefully they have. I don't know. Usually they don't. But nevertheless, there's some kind of culpability for the for what happened that night. Now I find that people are like, yeah, whatever. You know, this happens all the time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, no, no. Sometimes it's good here. Sometimes it's... they're not surprised when people don't show up anymore. Like it, it, they're used to it. It's happening all the time. Um, and, and that's a little bit concerning. Uh, the larger question about, you know, Spotify and all that. I mean, we're in a, in a pretty good situation in that we own the, the master recordings. There's only two of us. So we write the songs together so that the split is 50-50. You know, when you hear these stories about a record that sold 
you know, some huge hit record, and the one guy, one of the writers, only made, you know, six grand off of it or something. Well, there were 12 guys who wrote the track, first of all. You know, the, 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 the days of the songwriting duo are pretty few and far between now. Now it's, you know, it takes seven guys to write a hit song because, you know, everybody brings in a little piece and they put it together in their computer. It's not done, it's not Lennon McCartney sitting in a bedroom with acoustic guitars anymore. But we still work that way. So fortunately for us, if a song does well on Spotify, we can make a little bit of money, certainly not enough to live on. And it'd have to do really well. You'd have to do, you know, 30 million streams or something like that to see some money. I mean, my perspective is that this thing has never been designed in, in, any, in any way you look at it. The, the old model, the new model, the musicians, the creators are getting the shaft. They've always gotten it. They're going to continue to get it because people that put these systems together, are their goal is to extract as much revenue from the creators as possible for the product of the creators, and they really don't care what happens to the people who created these work that they are marketing. They, they absolutely could not care less. You're, you're a completely disposable uh, cog in a giant wheel in their mind. And that's always been the case from the early days of the record business uh, to what we have today. Uh, it, it's always been that way. And so if you do this expecting to get rich from it, um, I mean, you can, you, you know, you can try Everybody has their dreams, and you're entitled to them. But you have to be motivated by something other than there's a lot of. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's easier ways to make a fortune than uh, in the music business, right? As an artist. But I will say this: having lived through both, you know, as you pointed out, I mean, 25 years ago we were still in the, the old school. That was kind of the the last. I always think of us as kind of the last class. That got in under the old system, you know, before right. all the mergers started. You know, we came in, there were still a bunch of record labels and there were independent labels, and IRS Records had a great reputation. And of course, we got the shaft uh, in, in that scenario, but somehow it was more fun. Uh, and you were happy to be there, and you had a, you know, the, the dream was alive. And the music was better because you had to pass through some kind of uh, screening process to get your record out. You know, I think it's great that the art, the art, you know, that anyone can do it now. That you can do it on your laptop and you can upload it, and next thing you know, you're on iTunes. That, that's wonderful for people's creativity. But of course, if you flood the market with music, the quality will go down, and that's why the heyday of, of recorded music in rock, anyway, is is the old days. Because there was there was people, you know, there were gatekeepers, and like it or not, uh, you know, you couldn't get a record out unless somebody gave you permission. And I think, on a certain level, I think that made it better because, for a while there anyway, they the, the right people were making the decisions, and they brought the good, the good stuff to the fore. Then, perhaps the wrong people started making the decisions, and that led to where where we are now. At least that's how I see it. I mean. I, you know, I, it's great to be an independent artist, but man, it's a lot of work. It's a lot more work than it was when when I started, where my job was was to show up and play the drums and uh, 
you know, be a musician. That was my job description. Now I'm, I, I'm still that, but I have to be a businessman. And, uh, you know, there were always guys, there was a few anyway, that were, were sharp back in the old days. Like even, you know, back in the 60s, like a guy like Dave Clark from the Dave Clark Five who knew enough to retain ownership of his masters, lease them to the record company, share in the profits, and, you know, get out with a huge boatload of money. Not sure many guys like that, but he, he was one. Uh, now, you know, now it's easy to own your masters, but you still have to, how are you going to finance it? You, know, you still have to get it out. It's easy to put it up on iTunes, but how are people going to hear about it? It still takes money to do all the things in marketing, whether it's social media marketing or traditional marketing or whatever you're going to do. You have to, you have to pay for it somehow. Uh, it used to be the record company would be paying for it and, of course, charging you back for it, which you would find out later. And but, not just charging you back for it, charging you as, you know, they would yeah, be... Yeah, rate and inflation yeah, and you everything. Can, Every dinner, every party that yeah. was had that you didn't even know about was charged yeah. to your account. But at least you had the party, you know. At least you got the party. No, I'm talking about parties that we weren't at. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, it, it's funny. I mean, I don't know that there was ever a great time, you know, for now, then, ever. I don't know that there's well, ever I, been a know, great to, time. So, sort of to, to your point when you were, so I'm just going to, an, an addendum to the old days. Yeah. And then there was a, there was a, for a little bit of time, say the early 70s, where when FM came in, FM radio started happening, where they started actually, you know, a band could put out maybe two records before they had to have uh, some <laughs> right. records. They were actually grooming bands. I mean, right. like yeah. something like ACDC, you know, were, were like allowed to put out records before they turned into a, the ACDC we know now. You know, yeah. and, and well, it, so maybe just, you, that you, was that was a heyday. You can come around, and maybe that's come back a little bit because we can throw your records up there. They don't sell us. You can make another one. No big deal. But eventually, in order to, to really break through and develop an audience on a national or international level, it's going to take some money. And somebody except, has, except for back then, they, there was somebody who could tell you. You know, do that, don't do this. There were people. There's no more groomers. Yes, there's the time, but who's grooming the artist? Who's yeah. who's giving who's giving them the good advice? Yeah, that's something that yeah, we've discussed quite a bit on the show. Is that there's no growth anymore? And even in the '90s, I mean, that was a, a quite a, a quite a condensed time frame for a lot of bands. You know, a band would do a demo, maybe an EP, or do their own album they get signed sometimes the demo would be the album and they would get like one single out of that album and the, and the label would go okay get back in the studio write another record and if they didn't have a single they might put out that record or they might get dropped before that ever that second record whereas if you look at like a, a band like kiss i mean how many band or how many albums did they have before they actually had a hit record it was and it was a, a live record that actually broke them with Kiss Alive, what? I mean, there there's a, a number of bands that are like that. Whereas, it seemed to happen more and more in the in as the decades went Cheap on. Trick. It, uh, yeah, Cheap Trick, another example. By the time we ended up at MCA in, in uh, 1997, that was all over. It was basically, you know, you put your record out, and if you don't have some traction in, in six to eight weeks, you're done. You know, and that that's it. Um, and you're not coming back uh, unless. You know, somebody really, and in our case, you know, we were signed by the president, so that wasn't even enough. 
to keep to keep us around. So the, you know that was that was the beginning of the end right there when when it, it was like just throw everything up against the wall and whatever sticks we'll put our money behind that and everything else is to get left behind. Uh, and then pretty soon after that you saw the mergers and and then you know the end really of of, uh, of the record business except for the very few uh, big big name artists. Right. Uh, but you know I, I don't know when it was. Uh, for me, I, I kind of long for the old days a little bit, uh, given the fact that I've I got so much on my plate now to try to keep this thing alive. It would be great to have that that machine working for you on a certain level. Uh, and maybe I, you know, I'm a little smarter now than I was then, so I'd be looking out for some things a little bit better. You know, if you had the knowledge now, if you had the if you had the knowledge then that we do now about how this business works and, and how the record companies like to do things, we might have had a shot back then. But that's what they're whole, that's what they were counting on that you were just ignorant and you know happy to be there, which of course we were. Exactly. So well, it's easy to play on the dreams you know? of twenty two year old musicians, exactly. and you know, yeah. it's a dream come true machine. I mean, that's right. What they do. You know? You, you talked about the the financing of of recording and whatnot. Have you guys utilized a, like a pledge music or a Kickstarter for any of the albums? Yeah, yeah, we've done. We did a pledge campaign uh, on this record. Okay. Um, we did a Kickstarter for a tour uh, a few years ago. Um, you know, it's successful. It, we uh, we hit our goal, and uh, it, it helped. I mean, we, we didn't try to finance, I mean, I, you know, to try to finance your entire career off of uh, crowdfunding, you, you need to have a pretty big fan base. Uh, some people can do it. You know, people that, I think people, the people that do it have developed a huge, uh, a pretty big fan base, and then they go to them. If you're in the process of building your fan base, and then you're going to also try to, to crowdfund the, the budding fan base that you have, I mean, you have to keep your expectations pretty low, um, which we did. But, uh, you know, it was definitely helpful, and I think people enjoyed it, you know, to get music early and to get a, a, to, uh, get a piece of what was going on. Um, you know, it's a, it's a viable way to, to raise money. I mean, you know, frankly, not my favorite way to do things. Uh, I would prefer to make a product, and whether it's a, live, a, a record or a show, you know, to produce a product and have people uh, buy it. Uh, you know, that that to me seems like the best way of uh, conducting business. But we certainly have uh, have utilized that stuff. The one thing that's kind of shocked me, and I, I know a lot of people in the last few years, is the resurgence of of vinyl in um, mm-hmm. the the music space. It's actually, I think there was a report last year that it was exceeding streaming streaming revenue or something like that. It, it in 2015, which was a, kind of a shock in terms of how many people actually own a vinyl, you know, a record player that would be able to buy that much vinyl. Yeah, is that something? I, I went onto the Seven Horse website. I saw that you guys have CDs for sale. Um, have you discussed that sort of a approach to you know doing the 180 gram vinyl release? Yeah, with the big... of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's the thing about vinyl: um, it takes it's about a like an eight month turnaround time to, to produce final. I mean, literally, it's like the backup. Is there's only a few places you can make vinyl records, and they're they're always backed up. And you know the and it's and it's expensive. Uh, so the the profit margin is 
is um, is smaller than CDs. I think you know a lot of people would like to have it. I don't know. You know, I don't. I don't know if. Uh, I mean, I don't really see it. I find that hard to believe that the vinyl revenue is exceeding. I mean, to me, it's a streaming world. Right I think now. it's I think probably what it depends on how you're looking at it. That also, I was going to say about that figure. It depends on if you're comparing it to how much the artist is making. That goes to how what crappy a, a, a deal it is for the artist, the streaming situation. They're yeah. just not getting any money out of it. So if you look at it from that point, yeah, I could see that per capita, per artist. You're getting, you know, you're yeah, just I, not getting that much off the streaming. I, you know, I definitely think, I mean, that's something we've discussed. We just haven't been in a, in a position uh, economically to... Uh, you know, to invest the money in it, given how many copies we were likely to sell. I mean, you know, looking at it like that, we've got X amount of dollars. What are you going to do with it? Are we going to take it on the road? Are we going to, you know, make vinyl records with it? Um, some people have asked us about it. Frankly, not that many. I think we do some online business with it. Pretty tough to take those out, you know, selling from the merch table, lugging around uh, a bunch of <laughs> a, a bunch of records the way we do it. Kind of I mean. You're back to the whole. I mean, there is an issue with vinyl. It does warp. You have to take yeah, care yeah. of it. Not like a CD, where you can put it in a box and just shove it in the, you know, the back of the van or right. the bus or whatever. You know, it's like you. I mean, people like. Care. I think people like physical, physical copies. They like to have something they can hold in their hand. You know, we put a lot of time and energy into our packaging with, with the lyrics and photographs and whatnot, but. Uh, I think still, it's like once the street scene ball got rolling, uh, it's very. I think that thing is, it's not coming back. I mean, I think the download probably a thing of the past. Pretty soon, why would Absolutely. you, you know, why download it? I mean, we still do it because we like to have songs in the van at the ready for you know DJ sessions on the road. But not everybody's driving, you know, six hours a day. So. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'd love to have. I love. I love records. You know, I mean, that's what I grew up on. I love records, and I think they're fun. I don't think that they're necessarily a superior audio delivery source. You know, they do have an. Uh, uh, we've talked about Joey and I talked about this a lot. You know, it's like what is it? And uh, with one, one of the guys, that, one of the engineers we work with, a guy named Dave Way, who mixes our stuff. Who, uh, you know, his his opinion is that is that. The, it's the, the needle drop, you know, the layer of noise. Because you're actually getting more noise on a record than you do on a CD, but it's a layer of noise that people like. You know, they're, they're, they're comforted by, by the, the, the needle going around on the record. It doesn't, it's not sonically superior. That is a myth. Uh, I wonder, I, I, my personal wonder is, is that noise, how close to, to in, in a human brain, how does it react? How close is that is that reaction to that noise? Same reaction a baby has when a mother puts, <laughs> puts their head on the, baby, you know, right when they're born. Right. I swear to God, it's that kind of thing. It's like there's something comforting about it. So, you know, nowadays you can make your take your you know you can record your music digitally, but you can run it through analog equipment, and you can get that warmth that people are always talking about. You know, you can run it right through a right over the head of a 24-track tape machine and right back into Pro Tools. And you're going to get all that that tape stuff that everybody's in love with without the hitch that nobody is in love with. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yet, you know, people will tell you all the time that they like the sound of records better. 
I think a lot of it is, is uh, an emotional thing. Oh, and, it, and it's also fun to play records. It really is. When we were writing this, you know, we, we started working on our uh, on this record. We were out in uh, a desert town called Landers, uh, which is a little bit north of uh, the Coachella area where they do the festival. We rented a house for a few days, and we were out there just jamming in this house and writing. And they had a turntable in this house. And so we'd start every day with, you know, you get up and put on a, you know, John Coltrane record or something and drink your coffee. And, uh, you know, I hadn't listened to a lot of vinyl because I don't have a turntable at home, but it was the thing that really struck me was how short a side is. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. You put the record on and, you know, 20 minutes later, it's like, if that, what happened? So that was kind of fun to listen to some of those old records. Well, it's a, it's a, um, it's catch 22 with vinyl versus CD in that, you know, vinyl's so short. And then we've often discussed on the show about, you know, CDs are 78 whatever minutes. And it seemed like a lot of bands felt the need to get as close to as possible with that 78 minutes in the 90s. And yeah. a lot of, I think, too, a, long. A, too long. And people felt like, you know this you can't listen to this much music and also that there was a lot of bad material that was released because instead of putting out a a strong 10 song record that would have fit on you know two sides of vinyl they have now 78 minutes continuously to listen to that got whittled down to there's one good song and the rest of this is filler and it made these 17 and 1899 cds seem like junk and then you have Napster mm-hmm. and all that stuff happening because people just right. want one yeah. song. And right. uh, kind of the, I don't know if you guys well, have sure seen the, I, I, there's I, a documentary that you should check out should. called All Things Must Pass, which covers some of this about uh, huh. I haven't Tower that, Records. I think you're probably right. I mean, I, I'm sure, look, we can't just blame, we can't blame the industry, the record company guys. We can't just blame all those guys only, exclusively, for what has happened to the music business. The artists, have some culpability. Oh yeah. And maybe this is the maybe this is the area where you know the the, uh, the artists are responsible. I mean, we made a point of it on all of our records thus far uh, in Seven Horse. I mean, it's got to be it's got to be under like 45 minutes is the max. And if we can get down between 30 and 40 minutes, we're happy. You know, that's really where that's the happy zone for a, for us for a record. That way, it's going to work on vinyl when we do get around to, to pressing it up. And, you know, just as a piece of art that you drop in the car for, you know, and you drive to it, it's, it's a perfect length for a, for a CD. It makes you want to put it on again. That's really what you want to feel yeah. like at the end of it is I want to hear it again, not, oh, I'm so glad that's over. Right. You know, so yes. you know, like our good, a, a good novelist, a good writer needs a great editor. I mean, that's what makes the, the novel great. It's, it's, you know, you have to be able to edit in a uh, a certain way that can take away maybe some fat that is actually not helping. It's, it's a hindrance right. to the final, the, the, you know, the final product. An overall goal of ours, anyway, is to just keep it keep it short. You know, I like shorter songs and shorter records, and you know, like get kind of get to the point. And I think that goes back to early rock and roll. You know, when you get down to like. The, uh, you go back to like the early Beatles. Mm-hmm. You know, the songs were short, and uh, the sets were short. 
you know, these sort of these marathon shows. I mean, Dada was known for it, you know, three-hour gigs and, you know, the Springsteen effect of, you know, you're on stage for three and a half hours or whatever. I mean, people love that. Uh, they're hardcore fans, love it. Um, to me, you know, Seven Horse should play for an hour and ten minutes, just rock your face off and be gone, and that's it. <laughs> um, I, I wholeheartedly more, agree. More, more rock and roll than to get up there and jerk off for three hours and, you know, noodle around and jam and jam, and, you know, this, this endless improvisation and stuff. I mean, that's, there's a place for it. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, people love progressive music. They, they, they go for that. That's not what this is about for us. We wanted it to be lean and mean, get to the point, hit you with it, and we're gone. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what we're sticking with. Um, the, the one thing I wanted to ask about in reading the um, your, the biography on the, on the website, it, and I actually just saw this over the weekend, um, is the Wolf of Wall Street and the... I, I read how basically the, the person who was doing the music for the movie had contacted you and said, hey, we're considering the song to be used in the movie, which it did, and then also got used in the trailer. What I'm curious about, and I don't know if you guys know this or not, or whether it's just sort of happenstance or luck, is how did that song end up with them? Was it... Did you guys... Did somebody like know somebody that hey you should check out this band or were they just tuned in like I'm curious about what the step was before that where they actually ended up discovering the song to be able to use have been pondering uh, for several years. Uh, and we, we don't know the answer to that question. I mean, we, we never heard how they found it. We, uh, you know, we have our suspicions um, that perhaps you know, the, the only radio station that was really playing that track was uh, The Lost on uh, Sirius XM. Yeah. Okay. There's a guy named uh, Mike Maloney who programs that station. And he really, he got, he fell in love with that song. And he was the guy who was playing it. Um, a lot of commercial radio, we, we released that song to commercial radio. People were kind of freaked out by it, didn't want to play it. I don't know what there was a sexual innuendo, the title combination of both. Um, but it wasn't getting a lot of commercial radio, but it was getting a lot of around the block. Um, so we, we think that, you know, perhaps uh, somebody over the, you know, heard it while listening to that station. Now, who that was, we don't know. Was it Martin Scorsese himself? Because he does find his own music. Was it music supervisor Randall Post, or perhaps? Was it some lower-level uh, music editor who was dropping in temp music to cover a scene, which they often do, you know, and then the director ends up liking what he's, you know, he gets used to it and likes it. Could have been Robbie Robertson. 
Could have been Robbie Robinson. He was consulting on it. We have no idea who or when. We, we, we've tried to find out. Nobody knows. I mean, somebody knows, but we've never been able to find out. Look, the one thing I know is that me and Phil made a decision to just put our nose to the grindstone and just start going. I mean, we got tired of not doing things. We wanted to do things. And so, number one, we wrote the song. Number two, we recorded the song. Number three, we went out and played it live in a van, you know, with hardly any help and started crisscrossing the country. So the, the, the bottom line is we showed up. We put it out there, you know. So instead of just writing, a, you know, we could have written that song and just hung out at the house and, you know, I don't know. Tried to get a licensing deal or whatever, but we didn't. We didn't do that. We just went out and just started working, and that was that's that's how it happened. We we went we put it out to the universe. You know, we did it. I'm sure people discovered you through that then as well. They probably heard, you know a lot of people when they watch movies. Totally. We'll, we'll connect with a song in there. I'm sure that you guys had people show up at gigs or even, or maybe bought a CD off the website or something like that when they went through the credits at the end of the movie and went, oh, that's that's Seven Horse. I have to go check them out. We got a licensing deal. Right. Okay. We, got a, we got a publishing uh, administration deal from that, which was you know really fantastic to, uh, to start working with uh, this company in Canada called Third Side Music, who, you know, what they do is they, you know, place music in, on television and in films. Um, but we did see, you know, a, an immediate spike in uh, in downloads and uh, and in streaming all around the world as the film came out. And people started to, you know, look into what that was from off the trailer or the movie itself. I mean, that almost instantaneous after the movie was released the first month after. I mean, the, the, the spike in, in, in that was incredible. But the difficult thing is, of course, um, you know, then your job is to turn Meth Lab Zotho sticker fans into Seven Horse fans, and that's an ongoing uh, right. thing. Because people, you know, people like a song. That doesn't mean they're going to come see the band. You know, it, it, it's not that's not enough to have heard a song in a film and like it. Maybe you downloaded it. That isn't going to, what we found, you know, uh, to our dismay, is that that isn't enough to get, to get people necessarily to leave the house. Uh, you know, they need to be told, they need to be hit again with it from another angle and see it again somewhere else and, you know, put the pieces together. That's what eventually motivates somebody to, to come to a gig. Uh, you know, read about it or, um, you know, see it on television or whatever. It's like, you, you know, we... We, we certainly, and maybe we were naive in this, when, when that movie came out, we thought, oh, this is going to just explode. You know, this is like, you know, the old days when you get a hit song on the radio. Um, but it's not. It doesn't work like that. Well, the movie soundtrack uh, idea has changed, too. Yeah, they put a soundtrack out. I mean, I don't think it sold, you know, I have no idea what it sold, but I'd be surprised. I mean, I bought one. I went down to Amoeba and I picked up a, you know, a CD of the soundtrack. And it's pretty cool. It's got great stuff on it. Right. Um, but I, I doubt that they sold very many copies. You know, it's, uh, it, 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 having said that, we're thrilled, of course, to, you know, be in the film. And that's something that's never go away. That's something that you get to 
get to hang your hat on, at least for this band. I mean, we do have that. That song does have awareness. We've noticed when we play a gig, even if you know we're in a room and people don't know everything we're doing, we 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 go to that tune and they start coming closer to the stage. You know, that's that's going to be our calling card song for a while. I think. You guys just got done with uh, dates in the last couple of months. What does the rest of 2016 light? Is there going to be more shows? Are you going to be doing additional dates throughout the rest of this year? Yeah, we've just, um, I believe it was just confirmed a few shows uh, in July. I, I don't know if I want to actually announce officially because I haven't heard back that it's definitely locked in. But uh, yeah, I mean, we're looking to stay out at this point. I mean, our record is still, you know, it's new. Uh, right. It just came out, you know, a few weeks ago, really. Um, so, you know, our, we, you know, in our minds, what our goal is is to, is is to take this thing around the world. I mean, we've seen an influx of international likes on Facebook and on YouTube. You know, people are commenting. They're all over the world because the movie went all over the world. So people are aware of Seven Horse all over the planet. And, you know, for us, uh, one of the main reasons why we started this project is because we wanted to play. Uh, we wanted to play out, uh, you know, to a live audience. And we'd like to do it, you know, as much as we possibly can. We'd like to, you know, go all around the United States again and, and, uh, and take it around the world. I mean, that's, that's the goal. How, how far we're going to be able to get with that, you know, time will tell. We're just about to hit the hour mark, so this is probably a good point for us to... To wrap up, but I want to direct everybody who's listening to the Seven Horse website, which is www.sevenhorsemusic.com. Whenever those dates do get um, confirmed, they'll be on that website, and you can check out the albums. They're streaming on the website. Uh, sign up for the mailing list, that sort of stuff. There. I want to say thanks to Phil and Joey for for joining us on this episode this is pretty cool to uh talk to you guys and you have a unique perspective having been in you know one band in the 90s and then another band now that have made different impacts in different ways so um i appreciate you spending some of your uh, wednesday evening with us thank you for having us thanks for listening you can support the podcast by becoming a patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or Requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Somebody.